0: So much for that. That was wonderful, wasn't it, um, to have a full team up here singing um, and playing. So thank you, team. It is really cold up here, by the way. <laughs> Yovo, can you grab my yellow coat from the it's in the children's room, children's room. Thank you. Good to see you all. It's a really exciting day for us um, as this afternoon we've got the baptisms happening um, and we're really looking forward to um, celebrating there with you. But for today, um, this morning, I'm continuing a series that um, I started a few weeks ago on what does it mean to be a Christian? Thank you. Quick wardrobe change. Um, What does it mean to be a Christian? And um, a few weeks ago, when I first shared the first part, I shared about how the origin of the word Christian, um, as found in the Bible, meant a disciple. In other words, someone who follows Jesus. And we saw how it begins with that simple invitation of Jesus saying, come and see. Right. So it's not straight away like you have to do everything perfectly, but it's just come and see. And then the disciple answers that call to come and see Jesus, interacts with Jesus, meets Jesus. And then they get to experience him and then take that deeper commitment then to, to get baptized, to follow Jesus, right? To, to live with Jesus day by day. And they also answer that third call to make disciples of others. So we talked about how in essence, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to, do, to be a disciple, is to experience and answer these three calls. And whether you have doubts and detours, as Roy preached about last week, we go through doubts. We go through seasons of discouragement and detachment, but that's all right. You might be even going at a different pace than everyone else, but that's all right. Every discipleship journey is different. And what matters is that you are committed to the journey. Today, I want to talk about what this means practically. So what does it mean practically to live this out? And what does it cost to be a Christian? To be a true Christian in practice and not just a name, what does it cost? And is it worth it? Is it worth it? I don't know about you, but I sign up for a lot of things without looking at the fine prints, <laughs> right? Who has the time when you, when you rent a car, right? Who reads through the pages and pages of fine print? Every time your iTunes updates and you just click, I agree. How many of you actually read through the 56 pages of the terms and conditions, right? Even our credit cards and bank statements, even big things. Like, you know the general terms and conditions. But how many of us actually read the fine print? Because the fine print is long and tedious and confusing, right? And that's where they get you. So that wonderful flight deal, right? You read the fine print and you find out there's surcharges. And that wonderful subscription, you know, free trial. You read the fine print and you find out that it automatically renews unless you actively go and cancel, right? So we're we're very skeptical when it when it comes to anything because we're wondering what what is the fine print? And when it comes to Christianity, Jesus does something very surprising. He doesn't bless everyone and say, Come follow me, and I will give you mansions in heaven. But by the way, here's the fine print. Instead, Jesus' call starts out very clearly, very publicly sharing what the cost is. He says this. He says, a large crowd was following him. He turns around and said to them, so you would think that, you know, a large crowd is following. This is fantastic. This is growth, right? That he would love it. But he turns around and he says, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Can you imagine Jesus having a huge crowd and the disciples are getting excited. They're like, "Yes! How many people do we have today?" You know, you can imagine, you know, Thomas, he likes to calculate. So He's, he's sitting there, "Oh, we we've, we've got five extra people today than we did, you know, yesterday." And they're getting excited. We're, we're having a movement. We're getting ready to take over the kingdom. And and they're 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 sitting there calculating, you know, how many people are coming and the happy faces and Jesus turns around and says this. Can you imagine how the disciples feel? Ah, Jesus, you can't say that now. Wait till they're further committed. Or Jesus, why are you even saying that? And of course, the disciples themselves don't even understand what he's talking about. And, and, you know, can't you at least say it a little bit differently? Can't you just say, Jesus, follow me first and I'll give you everything else. But Jesus says, you have to hate in comparison, he says, right? You have to hate everyone else in comparison. In other words, he says, I have to be number one here by a long shot. He says, I have to be number one. And he says, and you have to carry a cross. They knew what that meant. They were used to people, criminals, that were condemned by Roman law, carrying their crosses, their own, you know, instrument of death up to the places where they would get crucified. So can you imagine how the disciples are feeling and how the people are are feeling as Jesus turns around and says to them, you want to be my disciple? You have to be willing to die. You have to be willing to suffer. And he goes on to say this, don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, that's the person who started the building and couldn't afford to finish. You know, when Roy and I first moved um, to the city, when we first moved to Australia in 2012, we had a place right above Flagstaff Gardens. Beautiful place, you know, and uh, we were really excited. We're like, we're going to plant a church in the city. And so, you know, it it was, um, we had just moved from Michigan. And in Michigan, my rent, get ready, was $600 a month for a two-bedroom townhouse that included all the utilities. <laughs> and so we come here, and they're like, oh, it's 630. We're like, hey, that's not bad, per week, right? And um, and we were just like, what? Anyway, we're like, no, we want to be in the city. We're going to reach the city. So we, we rented the place, and at first, everything seemed beautiful. You know, we, th- there was this really cool um, ceiling fans that when you click the little un button, it would it would come out and go. Pew! It was one of those really cool, like you know, we're like, wow, you know, the, the latest IKEA um, things, and all the drawers were soft touch, you know, so that when you shut it, it like gently closes, and we're like, this is fantastic. But after about six months, we realized something's not right. Things were beginning to fall apart, and you know, the the shower and everything was was a bit like. Something was not right, and then we found out later because our neighbors owned their place, and they told us that the builders had started out right building this. You know, uh, the, it used to be a warehouse and it divided, it subdivided into three uh, townhouses, and they began with all this fancy stuff, and they began with the with the furthest lot, slot number one, and it's my neighbors, and we've been there, and it's amazing. And then you come to our place, and it's it's nice, but it's like things are starting to fall apart. And then we visited our, our other neighbor's unit. They had a little block party. And their place was horrible. And we found out that the builders had run out of money. And so as they went, things got worse and worse. And eventually, they had to give it up altogether. And then someone else came and quickly finished the job. And so you know, walls and things were falling apart very quickly, even though it was a new construction, because they hadn't counted the cost. They hadn't budgeted. They hadn't done their job right. And they ran out of money. And Jesus says, hey, Make sure you know. Make sure you understand. This is the cost. He says, I'm giving it to you up front. What king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he'll send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up half of what you own, some of what you own everything that you own why does god ask for so much everything and does that what does that mean does that mean we all have to you know sell all our properties go be missionaries and monks and nuns and you know what does it mean when jesus asks for everything and why does he ask for so much i'm going to answer those questions step by step but i want to look give you a picture of what that means practically speaking, okay? So we're going to come to the answer, why does he ask so much? Um, but I want to answer the question first, what does it look like? What does it look like to give God everything? And when Jesus, you know, he, again, very clearly gave his clear picture of what Christianity meant, what it meant to follow Jesus, in what's called the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in chapters, uh, Matthew chapters 5 to 7, Jesus outlined what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a member of his kingdom. And I don't, I'm not, I don't have time to read all of it, but I do encourage you to, um, to read it in your own time. But I want to highlight a few things. So, for example, he begins by saying in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 3 to 10, he begins by saying, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So from the beginning, he says, here's the cost. You will mourn, right? You you will hunger and thirst for justice. In other words, you will face injustice, right? And you'll live in a world of injustice. And he says, but here's the reward, right? The kingdom of heaven is yours. You will be comforted. You will see God. You will be a child of God. He goes on to talk about the practical day-to-day things that a Christian is going to have to grapple with. He talks about anger and lust and bitterness. He, and he says things like, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So now we're, we're trying to see that this is the carrying the cross part of Christianity. This is the giving God everything. It's giving him even our right to be angry. I mean, we can be angry, but giving God our, the bitterness that comes with that the right to revenge right that that we feel inside he talks about giving to those in need praying and fasting about storing up treasures in heaven rather than storing up treasures here and he ends that section in Matthew uh, chapter 6 by saying don't worry about these things he talks about how you know we worry about oh, our what, how, the money then the clothes and the food and he says don't worry about what will we eat what will we drink what will we wear these things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers but your heavenly father already knows all your needs Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteousness, righteously and he will give you everything that you need. You see, real Christianity is not lip service of hallelujahs and amens, but it's the real hard heart work of giving God every corner of your heart, of giving God authority over every area of your life. He goes on to say, do not judge, and you will not be judged. And that final golden rule that we have heard, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. That's the essence of what it means to follow Jesus practically day to day. What it means to be a Christian is doing to others what we want others to do to us. Can you imagine if every Christian lived like this? Lived like the principles found in Matthew's 5-7? to what kind of impact we can make in the world. But the reality is not all of us are able to carry the cross. Not all of us are able to follow Jesus. Jesus went on to say this. He said, You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult Anyone who listens to my teachings and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. So who can make it? When, when, the, when, the, when the standards are so high, right, who can actually make it? Being a Christian sounds so difficult. I don't know about you, hearing all these, right? You're like, ah, it, this, it's, I, I can't forgive. I can't love my enemies. I can't let go of the bitterness easily. It's so hard to love, you know, even my own family. It's hard not to get angry, you know, when the kids are misbehaving. How is Christianity possible, In fact, when the disciples heard all these things that Jesus was sharing, they asked, who in the world can be saved? (laughs) Right? And I feel their frustration. Jesus, who in the world can be saved? And then look at how Jesus answers that question. Luke 18, 27, he replied, What is impossible for people is possible with God. You see, by ourselves, it is impossible to be a Christian. The standards of giving God everything is really hard. Giving God authority over our lives, it's a struggle. Maybe it's just me, but it's hard. It's hard. But God says, hey, I know it's hard. I know it's impossible. So guess what? I'm going to do it for you. That's why Jesus came to earth. Lived a perfect life of everything that Matthew 5-7 to says of loving his enemies and turning the other cheek and practicing justice and mercy. And he lived that perfect life and then he died on the cross because he became our substitute. He says to us, I know it's hard to live a good life. I know it's hard to always make the right choices. Let me do it for you and let me take your place. So I'm going to die the death that you were going to die for the many things you do wrong so that you can have the life that I deserve for the all the right things that I have done. Romans says it this way. Oopsie. Ah. Wrong button. Adam's sin led to condemnation. But God's free gift leads us to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners, but because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. You see, this afternoon, the individuals who are getting baptized, they're not saying, we're perfect, and we're going to do everything right all the time. That's not what they're saying. The individuals getting baptized this afternoon are saying, we're sinners. We mess up. We need Jesus, and we accept what Jesus has done for me on on, on my behalf, living a perfect life that I can't live, so that I can live now with Jesus and do my best through through his help to follow him and be like him. And the baptism is a way of, for them to say, thank you, Jesus, for that substitution, for that sacrifice. A disciple, by definition, is a learner. We're never going to arrive. A learner is always learning, always growing, but they're committed to that growth. They're committed to that journey. They're always humble, and they're willing to say, Jesus, what more can I do? Jesus, what else can I give you? Jesus, what am I uh, What have I done today that I need to ask forgiveness for? How can I become more kind, more loving, more humble? Christians are not perfect. We make lots of mistakes. We fall short of the ideals that Jesus has presented for us. But the difference is we are committed to the journey, and we believe that God can change us. The Bible says that the righteous fall seven times, but they get back up again. You see, Christianity is not about um, a standard that we, we keep on the outside, but Christianity is about from the inside of our hearts saying, Jesus, I cannot be kind, but I believe you can help me. I believe you can change me. So Jesus, I commit myself to you. Please help me to be kind. When we talk about Christianity and becoming more like Jesus. It's so, it's so disheartening sometimes when we fail, and we and we're tempted to think ah, it's impossible to change, right? right? I say to myself every every day, okay, today I'm not going to yell at my children. Today I'm just gonna be calm and gentle and firm, right? And then in the moment of frustration, when when that when that rage builds up. And, and I pray and ask God for help, it helps a lot. But if I, if I forget to pray and, I, and it boils over, and at the end of the day, I'm, and the kids are in bed, and I'm in you know, eating my ice cream, my chocolate, feeling guilty, that, that's the moment when I can pray to God and say, God, take this guilt. Right? I messed up. But Christianity is saying, but God, I believe tomorrow you can help me do better. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep trying. Because I believe you're working through me and in me. And I'm learning, and I'm willing to learn. Christianity is about growing in your walk with God and giving God more of yourself, right? And the truth is, we don't become more like Jesus by mere wishful thinking. It takes intentionality. It takes commitment. It takes um, actually spending time with Him. You know, there are no shortcuts in life. I wish I could just close my eyes and, you know, lose 10 kilos, right? I wish we could just... Um, Become you know excellent at playing the guitar by just listening to it, right? but the truth is there are no shortcuts. You want to lose weight, you got to go exercise, and you have to do it every day, and you have to be consistent. You want to get good at playing an instrument, you have to practice. And so in the same way, if we want to have a fuller experience with God, if we want to experience what it really means to be a Christian, we have to go wholeheartedly in and commit and be intentional about immersing ourselves in the Christian community, about praying and studying the Bible, about, right, spending time listening to God. Otherwise, we're always just in the shallow. And God is saying, hey, come a little bit deeper, right? Launch out. And then you'll experience the parting of the waters. And then you'll experience walking on the waters. But if you're just on the shore waiting for something to happen, how can you work with us unless we're willing to give him more, give him space to act in our lives? He can only take us as far as we're willing to let him. If we only give him a corner piece of our hearts, then we'll only get to see a glimpse of his majesty. But what would happen if we gave him more? It's like bike riding. Or skiing, or maybe um, other sports analogies that I'm not good at. I'm, I'm watching our kids, you know, um, bike, and they often ask me, "Mommy, when are you gonna come ride the bike with us?" I'm like, "Ah, oh, I'll take pictures. You go with Daddy, you know, because I'm I'm a little bit terrified of speed and gravity." <laughs> um, but I'm watching I'm watching you know Joshua learn how to uh, ride his little balance bike, right? And at the moment. He, that he's getting more comfortable with it. But at the moment, he's, because he's just starting out, he pretty much sits on the bike with his two feet and then kind of walks with the bike between his legs. That's basically what he's doing at the moment. And we're waiting for that moment for him to realize that if he actually takes his feet off the ground and actually you know, goes a little bit faster and builds a little momentum, we, we're waiting for that moment when he's going to experience the joy of gliding, right? that joy of actually freedom, which is what Micah has, um, has learned, and he's really good. And he's, he, he actually pedals um, a real bike now. And you know, Micah's there saying, Joshua, come on, lift your feet up, you know, and trying to encourage him. And Josh is like, nope, happy to walk along. He's my child. So he's like, happy to walk along, <laughs> um, just not, just not going to test gravity yet, not going to test speed yet, just, just walking along. And a lot of times our Christian experience is like that. We, we, we're like, yep, hap- happy to believe in Jesus, you know, we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep it where we can feel safe. This is what I'm comfortable with. But what would happen if we let go of our control and let God take us on that exhilarating journey of freedom, right? of, of healing, of understanding the goodness of God? Jesus asks for our all because he wants us to experience all. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You see, Jesus says, hey, I'm asking you for your whole life because I want to give you eternal life. Right? He's trying to say, yes, I'm asking for a lot, but I'm going to give you so much more. I'm going to give you eternity. I'm going to give you something so much more precious in the long term, in the big picture. It's another way he describes it. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man has discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. Why? Why did Why did the man sell everything he had? Why did he sacrifice so much? Because he knew the pearl was of greater value. So yes, it costs a lot to be a Christian, but we gain so much more. You know, for the first century followers of Jesus, becoming a Christian meant facing rejection, persecution. Um, I keep, sorry, I keep going back to the wrong... Rejection, persecution, imprisonment, and even death, where they would have to um, be mauled by lions in the Colosseum or be killed by gladiators for sport for the Roman Empire, right, for the emperor. And so being a Christian in the first century, you you didn't become a Christian just because, casually. No, because you knew what it meant. You knew what it would cost. And so when we look back, and that's one of the reasons why we can trust Uh, the reliability of what was shared in the first century because there is no way that I would die for something that I wasn't sure of. And yet hundreds and thousands of people in the first century died in the Colosseum, died in the prisons because they knew without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus had resurrected from the grave and that he would give them power to resurrect one day as well. Why does it cost so much to be a Christian? I want to present two reasons to you. First, because he's the only one who knows us completely and loves us anyway. There's no one on earth who can love you unconditionally. Even our you know, closest family members, they love us a lot. But even their love is not completely unconditional. Unconditional. And definitely not consistent, right? There are times that we're going to annoy them and they're going to love us a little bit less. (laughs) No one on earth is going to love us the way that God loves us. And if we're willing to commit ourselves to people who love us a lot, why wouldn't we commit to a God who's going to love us tremendously? And because he loves us so much, he gives us a life of holiness of whole meaning. And what I mean is this, you know, we can live a good life without following Jesus. Right. A lot of people say that, you know, I don't have to follow Jesus. I can live a good life. We know lots of people who are not Christians who live good lives. And what we mean by that is, you know, they, um, they do good things for others. um, They try not to be a bane on society. They recycle, you know, they, they do acts of service in the community. Um, They're, they're kind, good people. And they can live this good life without Jesus. But what's the difference of being a Christian? What, what, is, what is life like when we follow Jesus? And in the Bible, the, it presents how because God created us, he knows best what the good life is. That is not just about doing good things and it's not just about having you know the house and the and the dog and the you know all the things that we kind of think about when we think about the pursuit of happiness and life the pursuit of life liberty and the pursuit of um of happiness but the good life that the bible presents the good life that god promises there is something deeply meaningful you see there's a reason why people who have it all still feel empty inside On the outside, we look at them and we're like, wow, they have it all. Fame, fortune, family, friends, you know, they have it all. And yet, they feel empty inside. Because God has created us with this longing for eternity, with this longing to connect with the divine, with this desire to make the world a better place. And it's not possible without God. God gives us a life that isn't necessarily free from suffering, but a life that is free from guilt, from bitterness, from anxiety. And he gives us a life of purpose. And of course, he gives us eternal life. He gives us life beyond this one, a life that is truly free from suffering and sin and death. And that's why it costs so much. I asked you that question in the beginning. Why does it cost so much? Why does Jesus ask for so much? Well, the truth is only complete surrender can completely change us. right? Think about it. If, if we you know give God this much of our heart and we say, okay, God, don't touch this. This is, this is off limits, but you can have this. Well, that's all God can work with. Right? God says, give me all your heart. Give me all your life because then I can completely heal you because then I can completely use you because then I can do so much more for you. The more we give to God, the more he's able to give back to us. So yes, he wants our all, but because he gives us his all. And only complete surrender can completely change the world. You know, we're very um, inconsistent because we say to God, God, why is there so much suffering in the world? Right? And we're angry at God for all the injustice. And we're angry with God for all the horrible things that happen in our personal lives. And we're saying, God, why don't you do something? I don't want, this is not how it should be. And meanwhile, God is agreeing with us. He says, yeah, I agree with you. I want this world to be a better place. I want this world to be fair, to be just, and and, and there to be no more death and suffering. He says, but in order for that to happen, right, I, I need to make a world where basically everybody chooses not to hurt people. A world where everyone chooses to be kind and to be unselfish. And he says, help me make that world by becoming like me. And and only when, when everyone is then committed can the world change. Because right? if there is one person who is not committed to that, then all of this is going to happen all over again. So in, in order for Jesus to create a new world where we can... All have love and peace reign where there is no more suffering, no more sin, no more death. He needs everyone to be committed to submitting to his authority. As long as we are learning here and now how to submit to Jesus, right? Even though we're not perfect, we do our best to learn now. Then, after this life, in the world to come, God will have a people who are committed to being his followers for the rest of eternity if we want the world to be different then we have to be different if we want to experience freedom then we have to give up control even if that means temporary loss now Micah's learning how to play chess if you want to become his new best friend uh, tell him you'll play chess with him he loves every day he comes up he's like "Can, can we play chess and um, he's learning, so he's still learning the rules. And it's interesting to watch him play. Because chess, if you've ever played it, it, it's a very strategic game, right? Because the purpose of the game is to capture the other side's king. So it's not a point system. You don't get more points based on how many um, of your pieces you still have left standing. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that you capture the other person's king. And you know, if you're a good chess player, you know that that means you have to sacrifice the pawns and the bishops and the knights and even the queen if necessary to capture the other person's king. And Jesus says to us, hey, count the cost. Yes, there is a sacrifice. Yes, there is a cost. But ultimately, the the big picture is that you gain. At the end of time, you're going to be Uh, gaining. There's going to be a glory. There's going to be a destination for you that is going to be so much better than what you could even imagine. I want to invite you. We're not going to have time to read all of Psalm 73. But I want to invite you to, um, in your own time, read Psalm 73. It's one of the it's, it's one of my favorite psalms because it's so real. The psalmist basically says, hey God, how come all the wicked people around me who don't follow you, their life is so good. Meanwhile, my life is horrible. right? He says, God, I see all those who don't follow you and they're prospering. They get everything they want. They're mocking you. They're saying God doesn't exist, but their life is great. Meanwhile, I'm following you. And why am I going through such difficulty? And I'm poor and I'm suffering and I'm, I'm, I'm sick. And, you know, he, he's complaining. And then um, towards the middle of the psalm, I'll just skip ahead here. To verse 13. Okay. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. If I had really spoken this way to others. So this is everything he's thinking inside and he's saying to God. But he hasn't yet said it to other people. He says, if I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. And so... This wise person, before he goes and says that, tries to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. He says, I walked into your temple. And this is, you know, in the Old Testament where there was a physical temple. And he walks in and he sees the big picture of salvation that God outlines within that uh, space. And I don't have time to explain all of that. But basically, this is the conclusion he comes to. He says, truly, you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In the instant, they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish, for you destroy those who abandoned you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. You see what the psalmist realizes is that at the end of the day you could have everything. But without God, it can all it's it can all go away and you have nothing more. You have no more life to look forward to. But he realizes that when you have God, even though you have nothing, if you have God, you have everything. Because God becomes your comfort. God becomes your strength. God becomes your protector. He he becomes your provider. And he becomes the one who gives you then eternal life with everything that you didn't have in this world to come. That longing in the human heart for unconditional love, for immortality, for meaning, all of that is given by God. No one else and nothing else can fill that void. At the end of the day, we might have lost family and friends and fame and fortune, but we will have God and he is everything. There's going to be a destiny for us in the reunion. When Jesus comes again and when we we get to be reunited with all our loved ones, that reunion is going to be worth whatever cost we have here on earth. That reunion is going to be worth every sacrifice that we can make. So this afternoon, as we witness the baptisms, I want to invite you to commit or recommit to following Jesus, to count the cost to know that what we are gaining is so much greater than what we are losing as Christians. And in a moment, as we go into our discussion time and we, and we tease out a little bit more of what this means, I invite you to, to think and pray and, and, and really invite God to give you the resurrection of life and the revival that we need to be able to count the cost and to commit to following him. I want to invite the praise team back up for the closing song. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us and promising that you'll never leave us so that we are not on this journey struggling by ourselves, but that you are helping us step by step to become more like you, to become a blessing to the world. And, Father, help us to realize that um, this commitment, even though it costs a lot, Father, we gain so much more in the peace and the strength and the love that we have in you and also in the fact that you transform us day by day and that, Father, you will give us eternal life to come and a reunion with all our loved ones. And, Father, we just pray that as we discuss this a bit deeper, and as we think about this throughout the week, and as you witness the baptisms this afternoon, that you will call us to take that step of faith and to want to experience the freedom and the adventure that is alive with you. Thank you that we have the privilege of being your disciples. Help us to give Christianity a good name by really representing you rightly to the world. We pray in your son's name.